You can imagine the possibilities of starting to map how different parts of the world, different issues pop up in different areas. You can imagine patterns and responses to those challenges. You can see where sea level rise is a problem. You can see where invasive species might be a problem. So if this platform could grow, uh, you can imagine the, the research potential that all of these individuals collectively can produce for addressing some of these challenges. Welcome to the Esri and the Science of Wear podcast. You just heard Eric Steiner, a senior researcher at the Center for Spatial and Textual Analysis at Stanford University, refer to the power of geospatial thinking in understanding and tackling global challenges related to climate change, public health, and community development. Your ESRI Director of Conservation Solutions, David Gadsden, lead this conversation about our changing relationship to geography and place in an age of climate change and pandemic. Eric, thank you so much for joining me today. Wonderful to be here. Thank you so much, David. So I, I wanted to start by asking about an interesting statement you made in a recent Wired magazine story. The headline was, Amid a Pandemic, Geography Returns with a Vengeance. Uh, the coronavirus is forcing us to reconsider physical space and our place within it. In that article, you're quoted as saying, real-world proximity has been receding gradually from our consciousness, and the pandemic throws the importance of space back into sharp relief. Could you elaborate on this a bit further? It's what historian Bill Cronin called the annihilation of space, where our command over mobility eliminates the need for proximity. Even before the pandemic, we had globalized and virtualized nearly every aspect of our lives, from food to news to work. The pandemic, especially early on, brought some of these assumptions crashing down. So I think it gave rise to a new localism and regionalism. You know, how is it where you are? Can you get the, you know, can you get masks in your area? You know, how many ventilators are available in your city? Are your schools going to be in person? So in the context of this pandemic environment where you've got people working from home, you've got children schooling from home, um, you describe this new relationship with proximity and space. Where do you imagine this takes us? Is this a pivotal moment where geographic thinking may become more uh, significant in our daily lives? They're already starting to rework the design of commercial spaces. Outdoor eating spaces have expanded. Checkout lines now have the ubiquitous glass or plexiglass barriers. There's the uh, enforced, and I, and I love this word, the, the, the boostrophedonic way or kind of back and forth way that we um, are required now to, to walk through grocery stores. Um, you know, there's this whole kind of new geography of navigating uh, commercial spaces. And the changes at this stage are really minor, you know, things that can be adjusted temporarily. But urban planners, developers, architects, real estate professionals, I think everyone needs to take note, especially trends around telework. This has been on a low simmer for two decades. Um, being able to work from home, being able to work remotely has always been a possibility in this information age, but the culture of our work environments has not um, fully embraced it. But now that it's entrenched, I predict it's, it's not likely to go back. As we reemerge from this period, I highly doubt 
will be willing to tolerate two hour commutes and, and pointless office gatherings and things that have become accepted in, in work culture. And there'll be less need for office space and they'll have, have the potential to have urban flight. You know, we could have a reversal of the dominant rural to urban migration trend we've seen in the last 75 years. Third tier cities and connected rural areas, which you know, have seen a boost in the last decade, you know, I think we'll see a, a significant boost. You know, these are suddenly realistic possibilities uh, for people that possibly will offer a, a better quality of life um, than what they're used to experiencing in their requirements of being, you know, near their jobs. Uh, we're just seeing, starting to see these spatial effects and I think it will doubtlessly be a subject of keen interest for the next 10 years. I would say, it's an exciting time to be a geographer, but personally, I feel overwhelmed by all the possibilities. So I can't say I have a real clear picture of what is going to happen. <laughs> You're already segueing into design. How does design uh, enter your thinking as a geographer? How does it help you uh, consider uh, how to work towards addressing these complex challenges? I think the idea that resonates with me about design is really that it's about solving problems whether it's organizational design, architectural design, or even clothing design, whatever it may be, it has an orientation to figuring out what object or structure or form uh, will improve the human experience. Uh, in the big data era, we've realized that we have even a bigger problem, which is that we don't even know what the story is. And we need to design tools to help explore and discover those stories. That makes design a fundamentally human-centered process. So it is necessarily an empathetic act. You co-founded a lab at Stanford that went on to become the Center for Spatial and Textual Analysis. Can you help us understand the work of the center a bit further? Sure, yeah. The center is really, you know, perhaps not a traditional research lab that you might think of at, at a university. Um, probably because it's it's mostly a gathering and community of humanists. Um, it's humanists that are interested in the opportunities that big data and technology can can afford uh, in their disciplines. The lab is really built around this idea that handling big data and developing methods around visualization and analysis that are draw on um, technology and empirical approaches from other disciplines necessitates having expertise, having technology. And so we've done a lot of work to try to build a culture around that collaboration and intentionality to how we share our expertise, how we share our space and tools. It's really inviting people into what I would call a third space and allows, um, allows those faculty and research teams to work across many different disciplines and work also explicitly across many different levels of experience. It's fascinating to have you connect the importance of empathy and, and, and thinking in a compassionate manner with design and, and almost sort of engineering concepts that, that seems so important uh, in the effectiveness of putting out mitigations out towards the challenges that we're facing both in the natural world and and, and as uh, humanity itself. How do you see or are there examples of bringing that thinking 
two communities or two uh, social justice movements that are working to reconcile some of the challenges that we're facing today. So one of the things that I've been working on uh, for the past several years is just finding ways to bridge my professional interests with my, my personal lived experience in my own neighborhood. My interest in starting such a project stems from my belief in two parallel and probably related trends. Uh, first, that we're really facing a, a major mental health crisis in America. People are suffering and have been for some time. And two, that the concept of the neighborhood has really withered to the point that our communities are defined less by where we live and more by our digital networks. It's not as if people have stopped caring about the places they live, but their sense of the shared experience with their neighbors has really eroded over time. I was interested in finding ways to remind people of their collective interdependence, if you will, you know, not to be too grandiose, but, uh, but to connect with each other through that shared experience in space. And hopefully also along the way have a positive effect on the physical environment. What we've done in our neighborhood is do a series of interventions around collective art. One of those projects was to collaboratively design and paint a massive 50 foot circular mural uh, physically on the street in the street intersection and the novelty of such an effort and the need and requirement for collaboration to get it done, it really got people's attention. More than that, physical result was the really the process of engagement with neighbors that really build, built a lot of relationships that five years on from that initial project still sustain and, and bind the people that uh, participate in it and, and continue to participate in, in, in the repainting process of that mural. Interventions that are more bottom-up that people can connect to really, I think, help combat these issues of social isolation and um, really bring the kind of justice um, challenges forward. It's so inspirational to hear about this work at the community level. But are there technologies, are there new methods that you can uh, employ to look across cities or across a broader landscape to, to find uh, different areas of need or, or vulnerability? Another project that I would like to mention is uh, one that I'm doing with my colleague Zephyr Frank and Leo Barletta, where we're trying to imagine the possibilities of using alternative data sources that think about maybe tracking urban change and the the human scale impacts of it. And this project I wanted to reference is one of several that are using artificial intelligence and computer vision to try to make sense of the opportunity that the massive proliferation of street view data can have on GIS analysis or spatial analysis more broadly. So we, we trained models, for example, to identify the visible changes in, in residential areas uh, in urban spaces. And by doing that, we were able to identify patterns of vulnerability like uh, temporary housing or um, patterns of gentrification or uh, uh, urban gardening, you know, being able to pick up the signals of these different uh, trends in urban spaces on street view images then means you can tie them back to the location and then you can have a moderately successful job at creating a point data distribution 
of, of those trends. We can also combine that with traditional approaches like looking at uh, zoning policies and the uh, edges of development to be able to examine how policy affects um, the resulting patterns of vulnerability in these cities. As we work through these social justice issues, and in, in many ways, as a nation, we're faced with the challenges of how we put communities back together and help help understand our shared experience. Um, are there location intelligence or location technologies that are helping contribute towards utter social equity and justice? Activating those mapping efforts at the local level, the hyper-local level even, could really give a sense of the opportunities that are there for people. At that kind of bottom-up local scale, uh, it could you know, build awareness and spur potentially relatively minor changes, you might say. Um, but at bigger scales, there are projects like the Polis Center in Indianapolis that have really created these impressive community information systems that are really perhaps the front lines of addressing these issues of community health and, and law enforcement uh, and housing. And these kinds of systems, they really help bridge the gap between the needs of the local residents and the service providers who can meet them. Um, and those building those, those community information systems have this valuable byproduct, which is a democratization of the data. One of the things that we're working on here at Esri uh, is a tool set for, for racial equity and helping map and understand some of those dynamics around racial justice, just as an offering out for communities to take off and run with. Can you imagine that there are scalable ways that there are repeatable tools that we could somehow collaborate to make more available so the use of technology wouldn't be so intimidating uh, for communities that are just getting started with a, maybe a data or analytics approach to these types of challenges? Because I believe it needs to be so human-centered, it's really the kind of energy that the people bring to it that needs to be built up over time and that the currency of the human capital in those spaces is really what helps you know build the sense of purpose and sense of uh, sense of opportunity that can come from doing those kinds of data analyses um, so the work the work of building those systems cannot stop at having you know the data available and a kind of um, you know, a tool to do analytics around it, uh, it needs to have that bridge. It needs to have the, uh, you know, the local person who's um, facilitating or the local person who's the kind of manager of the, of the content or organizer of the material, um, which is the point at which I think the opportunity exists to take advantage of those uh, data sets and resources and, and analytics to be able to demonstrate um, inequalities or opportunities that you know may be presented uh, by examining those data. I would imagine that, that that actor you're describing, that sort of facilitator, like it would be extremely important that that is a trusted individual um, to go to take even the first step towards community engagement around these very sensitive issues. How do you approach building trust? How do you suggest communities get over that first step of 
trusting one another across the table to begin to dig into these issues. Do you have any insights in that regard? It starts with a whole series of one-on-one exchanges. You really have to meet people where they're at. Uh, You really don't want to make problems worse by injecting your own views on how people should participate. So it's really um, so much involved about listening and attending to the real needs of people. I think this gets back to the empathetic approach that design offers is Mm -hmm. that you can't solve problems that you're inventing uh, if it's not the right problem for the community. So if we, if we reflect on that, the the adage of um, think global, act local, how can we begin to build upon what you've learned and, and build upon your work at the center to try to tackle large global challenges uh, such as climate change or the horrific loss of biodiversity that's, that's playing out today. Do you see a scaling opportunity from, from some of your work? Yeah, I think there's a lot we can do. In fact, and a lot of the work that we've done at the center actually explicitly tries to find ways to um, use crowdsourcing technology or citizen science technology to try to get human voices uh, into all of our research. In the field of conservation and climate change, we have several projects. One of them, uh, landtalk.org, is one that's really oriented towards uh, this um, explicit issue of what's happening locally that has to do with landscape change. Not just climate change, but landscape change more broadly. Um, Climate change is certainly a big factor in that and really trying to build a platform to allow people to do storytelling and um, have everyday discussions about the changes they see in the landscapes around them. So we've built this educational platform. It's, it's rolled out in, in high schools and university courses on a relatively small scale, but we hope people uh, develop some awareness of it. The model is that uh, a student will interview someone that has lived in a location for at least 20 years. And usually it's a family member. And the question they ask is, how has that landscape changed? And how has your relationship with it changed? And what activities have changed over time? There's a kind of reflection process that happens that reveals this kind of invisible knowledge that people have about changing landscapes. They don't recognize that it may relate to broader trends globally, but they have this knowledge about what changed in their backyard, um, which is a, you know, a common, a common uh, place that people reference. So, but people end up talking about, you know, they start to ascend into these broader issues. You know, there's, you know, changing climate issues, there's invasive species, there's, you know, a loss of recreation opportunities, you know, so people recognize these, these connections. Climate change itself has been so politicized and it's so challenging for people to have conversations around it without going there, so to speak. And so one of the, one of the tenets of this platform, the Land Talk platform, is to really take a neutral perspective and to not be trying to generate a kind of activist element around uh, climate change or landscape change or conservation issues but just afford the opportunity for an older person to make observations. And so you can imagine the possibilities of starting to map how different parts of the world 
um, different issues pop up in different areas. You can imagine patterns and responses to those challenges. You can see where sea level rise is a problem. You can see where invasive species might be, be a problem. So if this platform could grow, uh, you can imagine the, the research potential that all of these individuals collectively um, can produce for um, addressing some of these challenges. Eric, many of our listeners are leaders in business, government, nonprofit, and the NGO sector. How can they benefit from the approaches that you've, you've really refined in, in the center? The starting point for me is really to, to be really proximate to your users and audience. And so to, you know, again, always recognize um, who that audience is and who is going to be impacted by uh, policy decisions that are made or the products you create. I think the other thing is just to uh, recognize the opportunities of alternative data um, and see that it's not, you know, we're uh, particularly in the geospatial field, we're so used to uh, the technologies that are available. Um, and there's certainly been a proliferation of lots of other data sources, you know, really expanding the tool base and the recognition of, of data opportunities, you know, allows, I think, people to, to see other ways to interact. Eric, this has been a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, David. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you for listening to the Esri and the Science of War podcast. And thanks to Eric Steiner for sharing how data visualization and location technology increases our understanding of critical issues in today's world. To learn more about how location intelligence, mapping, and geospatial thinking can help leaders in business and government address important problems, visit esri.com.